Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You are listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a real person sharing their story of loss and the insights they have gained that help them on their journey with grief. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Cheryl, who lost her husband suddenly after a battle with mental health and addictions in his life. So welcome to the Grief Stories podcast, Cheryl. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for asking me. I'm really grateful. Our podcast exists to help people connect with stories of loss so that they don't feel as alone in their own stories. And so I always begin by asking, would you mind sharing with us your story of loss? I sure will. Um, I met um, my husband in 1997, and we were in an organization that was uh, focused on recovery, and it was quite magical when I met him. Our value systems were very, very similar. We were both dedicated to living a spiritual and sober life moving forward, both of us having had experience with addiction and trauma and that kind of stuff. So our union was quite, quite wonderful, and um, we both worked really, really hard both in helping others in the recovery field as well as in our in, in both of our jobs. And things were things were going along very, very well. And at about the five or six year mark of our relationship, we we got married in two thousand and about five or six years after that, I started to notice that my husband had some would appear to be some serious mental health issues. He went to his doctor and he was diagnosed as uh, bipolar, as having bipolar condition. And so, you know, there are medications to take care of that. However, it's kind of a hit and miss thing. It's a question of integrating different medications to see what's going to work for Mm -hmm. him. So um, there was quite an experience of trying to get the right dose etc for him but it seemed to be going along okay and we were again working hard in both of our businesses and we were able to travel a lot and it was just it was just this kind of wonderful life and then one day my husband didn't come home and it kind of started this spiral of first of all, wondering what had happened. So I started calling all the hospitals, etc. <laughs> and as it turned out, he had started to uh, embark on his addiction of choice again, which was cocaine. And he didn't tell me right away. I just started to see this change in behavior and and going out at night and not not being around not being not being focused and in 2009 he uh he didn't come home again one night and then I got a phone call very very early in the morning to say that he was in jail and he had been charged with uh, trafficking on a federal level and it was obviously very traumatic for me I was still living this kind of what I thought was a a sober, directed life. So it started this very, very 
wild ride uh, for about two and a half years. And he was in and out of jail. He was in and out of hospital. At one point, he um, they call it dropping the motorcycle. And he fell and broke his shoulder and took some street oxycodone and ended up in the ICU in a medically induced coma. And that was about a year before he passed away. And I remember the doctor very distinctly telling me that this guy, this guy's going to die because of his addiction. Basically, because there's a stigma attached to addiction, he asked me why I was with him and it didn't help the situation. But the, the horrible thing about that experience was he was in a coma for eight days. On the ninth day, they took him out of the coma. And during that time period, I kept getting these reports. He was going to have kidney failure. He wasn't going to be able to walk. He's going to be bedridden, all that kind of stuff. And on the ninth day after this coma, he signed himself out of hospital. And proves that an addiction can hold you regardless of what's going on for your health. So the last year of his life, it just became a lot about shame and isolation. And I was embarrassed that uh, he had gone down this road again. You know, and I wavered between anger and compassion. And December 12th, I'll never forget it. I, I, I belong to a, a choir and I had a, uh, I had a solo part in this, this choir that I was involved in. And it was a Monday and I had a rehearsal that night and he came home that afternoon and the, there was just something really, really off about him. But, you know, on reflection, when I look back on it, the two weeks before that, he had been extremely depressed. By this time, he'd gone off any kind of bipolar medication, and he had just spent most of his days lying on the couch, not interacting with anything, just him and the dog on the couch. So when he came home this day, there was something really, really off. He started to exhibit like a like a psychotic break in the house and started to kind of destroy things in his office, um, tearing things apart. And he was representing that there were cameras all over the house and there was like a paranoid psychotic break going on. And by this point I had had it. Like I just, I just, I started walking the dog like every 20 minutes because being in the house was just anarchy. And the last time I came back from walking the dog, I went upstairs and he was on the floor in my uh, in a, in our bedroom. And he said, "Can you get me a uh, an anti-anxiety medication?" And at this point, I, I had never I I had stopped going into his office because it was according to him, if it was off bounds, you you just can't go in. So I went in and I found thousands and thousands and thousands of bottles of pills and medication and to be honest I just didn't know which one of them was the anti-anxiety medication so I picked one I went back into the bedroom where he was on the floor and I gave it to him and he looked at it and he put it into his mouth and then about one minute later he he died and it was shocking uh, obviously <laughs> because he was a young man he was 52 at the time you know it's it's mandatory that an autopsy is done and what the coroner told us at that moment was that he had a 
a, a toxic level of cocaine in his system. And um, it had basically stopped his heart. And that's what happened. To say that I was grief-stricken at that moment would not be the truth. The chaos that had been happening the two years prior to this was just so monumental, uh, Maureen, that I just, you know, there was just a sense of relief that not only was he out of his own misery, but that I didn't have to go through this stuff anymore, like this, mm-hmm. this, this absolute chaos. But I will tell you that about six months after this, I started to get that, I think they call it survivor's guilt, whereby I started to really question whether I I could have done something, you know, is there is there something I could have done to help him? And the truth is, I, I couldn't have. Like, the, the addiction had a hold of him. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I started my own kind of spiral downward at that moment. But I, I started to get some grief counseling at that point, and I had joined some support groups for people that were, you know, married to addicts and, and that kind of stuff. So that's mm-hmm. that's really the crux of what happened. Um, wow. So you had this, you had this meeting and it was like souls meeting and you had some really magical times together. And then the illness that took him away from you really took him away from you while he was still here in so many ways between the, the effects of having bipolar disorder and then the return to the addiction, you were already losing him in that time. And so then some of those challenges you faced were just surviving that period of time with all that chaos and the, and probably a fair bit of fear for him and maybe some fear for yourself in that stretch. And then at the time of his death, it didn't feel like the way you felt grief should feel because that feeling of relief from being him being free of that pain and, and confusion and you being free of the chaos was really the the first overpowering feeling. And then the grief came a little bit later, the more the kind of things that we think of as grief came a little bit later and and took you through your own process. And I'm so glad that you got good support that was able to help you see that you had done just the best you could during those difficult days and months and years. I firmly believe that we really do the best we can in difficult circumstances. And sometimes when we look back, we can see something else that we could have done, but we couldn't have known that in the time. Correct. When When you're in it, I think we spoke about this yesterday, when you are in it, you can't, it's like the forest for the tree, whatever that saying is. You, yeah. you can't see it. You can't, you yeah. can't even envision that there's another, another yeah. way of doing things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because you're really in survival mode when you're in the midst of something so very painful and challenging is that you're in survival mode, just trying to get through one moment to the next. And that idea of taking the dog for a walk every 20 minutes so that you could just have some time to breathe away from the chaos is part of what really resonates for me and the idea of just trying to survive, right? Right. And when we're in survival mode, we're not always able to think on that bigger perspective. We we can't see the forest for the trees. You're right. Using that statement works very well. Yeah. So some of those challenges and grief then were kind of coming to a place where you could probably feel feel more sadness and and 
experience the loss of the of the earlier days, perhaps. Right. And I remember very clearly, like you, we have these moments of clarity when we are when we are in this you call it in the mud, you know, when we're in the mud. And my moment of clarity came, I was sitting across the table from my my family lawyer and I told him that I, I was getting I was starting to get help at this point from external forces. I got a psychologist, grief counseling, like I mentioned, and but I remember saying to my lawyer, life is really, really short and I have to do something, whether it be helping others and or just start to live my life for me. And something that I've always, 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 from the time I was a little girl, been involved in is art and music. And I had basically shelved that, although I can say that the last two years of my husband's life, I had joined a choir. And for that one and a half to two hours a week, it it literally saved me because, you know, you're out of self. Mm-hmm. You know, you are out of that uh, self-absorption that whether it's, you know, self-pity, whether it's grief, whether it's whatever, and there's a focus on something else. And when I was talking to my lawyer, I said, you know, I have to dedicate the rest of my life to art and music because it's what makes my heart sing. And so that's what I ended up doing. And at that point, I continued to sing with this adult rock choir. I was a soloist with this choir, but I also thought, geez, is there anyone doing a rock choir for kids. And I remember Googling at four in the morning to see if anyone had any music organizations of rock music for children and no one was doing it. So I called them an entertainment lawyer the next day. I registered a name called Voices Rock Canada and started a children's rock choir. And it has since flourished to include choirs for seniors, women physicians, children and adults, well over 250 members as we speak for this. And it's just been such a joyous experience, particularly, I mean, we're in a pandemic now. And of course, choirs were a no-no because there's, you know, whatever they call it, that spit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe the when term is singing. speaking moistly. <laughs> yes, speaking moistly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, so we were able to go online with this and, and maintain our entire membership. And it's just been wonderful. I've just been able to experience between the support groups that I continue with and art and music. I have now just this beautiful sense of peace. And I remember a long time ago, Maureen, reading something about the meaning of happiness and who the happiest people are in the world. And there was this phrase, and it's never left me, which is the happiest people in the world have causes outside of themselves. Mm-hmm. And for me, that has been, you know, music and and really helping others, too, because I, I've also gone back to school full time. But mm-hmm. the courses that I'm taking are called uh, Addiction and Mental Health 
uh, work and also Indigenous studies. And I feel that my story, uh, my grief story, my uh, resilience, I suppose, can all impact others and make change for others. You know, like it, it, it really, really can help people because I, I, I speak from a lived experience. Mm-hmm. And that's such a powerful place to speak from. And I think it seems like among the things that helped you survive those difficult years at the end of your husband's life included that ability to be with others in the choir and to focus on coming outside of yourself, to join the, the voices, to sing together. We know that there's a real power of healing and community and singing together. And so that was something that was really helpful to you in coping with those challenges and then and then it became that focus for you bringing that opportunity to others to come into a safe place and connect and be with the music and be with one another and and that's such a beautiful way of helping people and from taking something that helped you through pain and offering it out to the world and maybe not everyone that that joins a choir is in that kind of a challenging situation or grieving in the way that you've been. But nonetheless, it, it's such a, a a powerful way to, for people to hold space for feelings and be focused outside of themselves, as you said. And so what a, what a nice combination with the studies that you're doing, the opportunity to bring music in the field of addiction and mental health, and Indigenous studies to to weave those parts together in a tapestry that will help so many people must feel really like um, a place where you are feeling well with this. Right, right. There's such peace in it. I have to say, I'm still a little muddy on the direction. I've been self-employed for 37 years, and uh, the thought of working in a government agency is just like I, I, I tell people, you know, I'm virtually unemployable because I'm the boss. Like I'm not, I'm not yeah. someone that takes direction very well. I feel I can lead in this. There's still a little mud around what direction I can take with this, but if I can somehow integrate it with music, with the indigenous culture, which I love and um, my knowledge of uh, mental health and addiction, there is something I can do. I'm just not totally clear on it yet, but it'll unfold <laughs> as it will, right? Like yeah. um, one of the things I thought about was calling an organization The Circle so that I could integrate all sorts of programming with, within this modality. But, you know, it will come, Maureen. It, yeah. it's a, you know, As a social worker in private practice, I hear very much what you're saying um, after years of working for agencies. And I believe opportunities come for us to make a difference in the world in a way that fits us and fits our worldview. And so it seems to me that you're going to take your grief experience and your lived experience and move into a place where you find your place in the world of helping people with compassion and care through music and your knowledge and skills and experience. And the pathway will open up, I'm I'm sure of it, as you sort of explore. Um, and muddiness, I think, is kind of part of the messy middle of whatever endeavors we're taking on, right? 
that yeah, thank, you, thank you for sharing that yeah that's that's exactly it and thank you for sharing that that's your background as well I didn't know that it's uh yeah yeah <laughs> it's it is muddy. <laughs> it is. But, but, but it doesn't matter. You know? Yeah, but there, there are many ways to help people and to bring yourself to that. And to me, it feels like that bringing yourself to people in these ways, whatever that becomes for you, is a part of your healing grief, that it's a part of the circle for you in this experience, is coming back to the beauty, some of that beauty you felt with that connection in the beginning. It's it's going to be a beautiful ride. It already is. I can hear it in the way that you tell your story that this has not been an easy story to live, but you've made some peace with it and you have some purpose that moves you forward despite some of the difficulties and challenges in this in this story that that has some really painful parts. Right. And what I would want anyone listening to know is that, you know, Leonard Cohen wrote this in one of his songs that the crack is where the light gets in and where there is a crack, however brief, you know, know that there is light at the end of a tunnel when you are in grief and when you're in the mud. And that's, that's what I would want people to know that, there is no, there's no timeline on this. You no, know, this is another thing that should be made really, really clear. Like, you know, my my grief propelled me to make incredible and radical change in my life. However, for for some people, it may, it may be it may be longer. It may be it may be shorter. It, but I, I I want people to know that there is light at the end of that tunnel and to hang on, but also to reach out to people. Like other people are our our lifeline sometime, you know, like mm-hmm. you know, and just 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 to be listened to and to reach out. Yeah, it sounds like it's so important to know that there is hope that you can find the light again when it's at your darkest, that that you don't have to do it alone, that there are people willing and able to help you, and to know that your your journey is your own, and so you'll do it at your own pace, in your own way. Exactly. And again, no timelines. So forgive yourself, because mm-hmm. that, is that is the most gentle thing I can say to anyone don't don't think that you have to be at a certain place in your grief mm-hmm. um, to be over it the worst thing that happens is that say a family member might say why aren't you moving on yet and just just sit still with your grief and yeah that's that's yeah I often suggest that people just try to trust themselves and to know that we don't actually get over grief. We actually learn how to carry it. And so this story of yours is your story for life. And what you've done is take music and education and renewed purpose in life. And you have used these tools to find ways to carry this story of yours so that it isn't as as painful. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
yeah. It's a beautiful life if we if we love ourselves and are gentle with ourselves. Mm-hmm. I really like that you said to that to to be kind to yourself because that's something that I often say to people: hold yourself gently because you're doing the best you can every step of the way. Even even when your best isn't as good as you wish it would be, you're doing the best you can. Right. Right. Exactly. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I know that this is a a powerful story that may resonate with many of our listeners and hopefully will help them to hold themselves gently as well. Thank you very much for asking me, Maureen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we know that this story might be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.